So this evening is a continuation of my last Dhamma talk about the Sure Heart's Release. This is uh, when the Buddha spoke of the unshakable deliverance of mind. Literally, um, he's speaking about the departure from craving, which is the extinction of suffering. And ethically, he's talking about the eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion. So in many of the ancient texts, he makes it clear that there are three things that we need to really take a look at in order that we're following the path. The first one is virtuous conduct through generosity, which I spoke about last, the last time I spoke. The second is virtuous conduct through our speech and our behavior. And the third is the cultivation of uh, concentration and wisdom. So these three are called dana, or the expression of generosity, sila, virtuous conduct through speech and behavior, and bhavana, which means the cultivation of concentration and wisdom. So these three are indeed part of the holy path, but this is not the highest aim that the Buddha had for us. I'd like to read to you uh, again from the Majjhima as I read last year, uh, last time I was here, probably last year too. <laughs> this is from the simile of the heartwood. So this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life, of the Dhamma, is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of a Buddha. So there's a a beautiful story about the Buddha walking in a forest with a group of monks, and he bent down and scooped up a handful of leaves and asked, Which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forests? And of course, uh, the monks who were probably all totally enlightened beings, arahants, they said, they knew the answer. They said, (laughs) which is more, the leaves in all the forests? So the Buddha replied, the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in the forest, but what I teach is like the leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for liberation. And so you could say that in these teachings of uh, generosity, um, dana, sila, morality, bhavana, the cultivation of the mind and heart, these are like those, the small gathering of leaves. And this is all, when we look at it closely, this is all that we can use to stay on the path and be on the path. Manindra's way of describing this, as I mentioned before, is the three pillars of the Dharma. Sometimes it's described as sila, morality, samadhi, concentration, and wisdom, panya. 
but he put dana, Manindra put dana or generosity in there because when he read all the suttas, he could see that when the Buddha went out to give the teachings, he started from the place of dana. He started to um, give the teachings of why it's important to practice dana or generosity in our lives. And this is a teaching that I gave last time why it's important to practice letting go in many, many ways. Because when we practice letting go, we let go of greed, a major factor of our suffering as human beings. So tonight I'd like to speak about sila, and sometimes that's referred to as morality. It's kind of a very heavy word in English. So I like to call it living in harmony by the careful attention to our speech and behavior. So this has to do particularly these five precepts that we take, or eight precepts for some of you, about purifying our speech and behavior. So this is about constantly refining our respect for this particular training, so that we're not hurting or harming others, and mostly we're not hurting ourselves because we're not um, putting those, those seeds of unwholesomeness, unskillfulness into our karmic stream. So this is constantly refining our respect for that as we do our practice year by year and day by day and through the years. I know um, for myself, I have many times looked at what I've done or seen what others have done and I think, oh, I've really got to take a look at that one precept to refine my speech more, to refine my actions more. So it's not just about uh, refraining or having great respect for others, not to harm them, but it really has a lot to do with not harming ourselves, to be in, in great alignment with our highest values. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri Otapa at its backrest. And I'll be talking about that this evening, Hiri Otapa. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel towards your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, one risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So in the teachings, it said that the proximate causes for careful attention to arise in terms of non-harming are known as these two factors of hiri otapa. These are the underpinnings of the precepts that we take um, every full moon, half moon, new moon. And these words, hiri otapa, are from the ancient Pali language. Now, many um, scholars have tried to translate these words into English, but usually the kind of two-word translation of each one is not very satisfactory. And I think some one of us mentioned it in one of the Dharma talks. So hiri is translated in English as moral shame, and otapa is moral fear. So that's pretty heavy in, our, in the Western culture. So I'd like to fill those out for you um, during this talk. 
If we look at Hiri more closely, H-I-R-I, it's a wholesome shame, a wholesome shame, or it's shrinking away from saying or doing anything that will cause hurt or harm. Sometimes when I've been with my teachers, my main teachers have been Manindra and Seda Upandita, and they've seen this done or they've heard this done, they would say, oh, that person doesn't have Hiri Otapa strong in their hearts. It's not this kind of shame that's associated with self-aversion, this kind of uh, Hiri. It's not that psychological kind of toxic shame that we hear about in the West, where one's, one may feel inherently bad as a human being. And this is a, a real suffering for people who experience this. This kind of hiri or this shame is an innate sense that certain behavior is wrong, certain actions are wrong, or our words don't feel right to ourselves. It kind of has an internal connection, an internal direction. There's an intuitive sense that what I'm thinking to say or to do will be hurtful to someone else and be hurtful to myself, too. It's not really giving respect for ourselves as human beings. So as Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of our great translators in the West, an American who lived in Sri Lanka for a long time and translated a lot of the wonderful um, Pali into English um, texts that we have, he said, this is, here he is rooted in self-respect. We shrink away from wrongdoing. Wrong meaning it's going to hurt someone and it's going to hurt ourselves too. It has an internal reference. It, we feel that it isn't right from the inside. It's not from somebody telling us it isn't right. It comes from the inside that this doesn't, just doesn't feel right to say this, to do this. It comes out of respect for one's own dignity and integrity. So we're careful not to plant harmful seeds of ill will, ignorance, or um, attachment to our self-serving actions. But it's it's really because we, we don't want to cause harm to ourselves because we're planting that in our karmic stream and in the cause and effect relationship of everything, that's going to come up and kind of bite us again. So I'd like to read to you what Seadao Upandita wrote in his book about this in this very life. This is, um, you'll be, those of you, when you leave, will be offered um, uh, possibilities to purchase some of these books later. So these discourses written in this particular book in this very life were given in this hall in 1984 and they were transcribed. So I'd like to read to you this part. Hiri or shame is a feeling of disgust towards the kilesas, towards greed, hatred, and delusion. As you try to be mindful, you find there are gaps during which the kilesas pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to your senses, so to speak, you feel kind of an abhorrence or a shame as having been caught off guard. 
this attitude towards the kilesas is hiri. You, it feels like you, you want to shrink away from them. So when I see this happen in practice, where the mind's getting caught in wanting or aversion, it's not a peaceful feeling. It's kind of an agitation in the heart-mind. And it's sort of like, it, it kind of wakes me up and sort of makes me take a closer look at what's going on in here. So it isn't about, you know, the, the situation out there. It's more about my inner relationship to that situation. So it makes the intention stronger to be more alert when we feel that agitation inside. We don't, that's not, there's something wrong. There's something out of, out of sorts about that. It's not in alignment with my highest values. So not willing to keep feeling that agitation, I really take a close look at it, and um, the mind kind of shrinks away from that and is, then is willing to be more alert around that. So that's hiri. And otapa is a moral fear or dread. That's how it's translated in the West. This has an external orientation. So it's a healthy form of fear of the consequences of our actions. So we, we sort of think it out more, you know. So maybe we don't feel that, is this right or wrong inside? Will this hurt someone or harm someone from the inside? But when we look in relationship to the outside, maybe there are more warnings or there are more alerts to us. Um, what, are, what are going to be the consequences of our actions that spring from delusion or ignorance, you know, just kind of not seeing things clearly, or from hatred or just aversion, or from greed that we want it our own way. We may feel a fear of the consequences of breaking the harmony within our communal, uh, those that we respect in our communal relationships the communal standards of um, who we, we respect are really important to us. So it's dreading the difficulties that come from that. So a lot of times, you know, I, so I might be having thoughts of this or that, and I would think, I wonder what Joseph would think of me if I carried this out. You know, he's my good friend. Or I wonder what Upandita would think, you know, of something like this. Um, it's not real horrible stuff, but it's just, you know, like I wouldn't kill or steal. But uh, just like harming somebody else or not thinking clearly about what I need to do. So I fear of losing their trust. I fear of losing their respect for me as their friend. So it's said in the, in the scriptures, we fear losing the trust of the wise and the virtuous whom we treasure. I remember um, a long time ago in the 1980s, I was, uh, I was here, might have been in 88 or 89, I was teaching a retreat. And one of my friends was here and she was having a really hard time in her, in her marriage. And um, she was thinking, she was confessing to me, well, you don't 
know this person so I can tell this story, and it was long ago, she was confessing to me that she, she thought that maybe somebody she was having a Vipassana romance with here in the retreat that maybe they could get together later on. And then I, my eyes kind of, like I was shocked that she would say that to me because, you know, I knew her to be a very devout um, with the precepts and everything. And just my look on, the fa- on, on my face, you know, she was watching me and she said, oh, but Kamala, that would be very bad advertisement for the Dhamma, wouldn't it? And I said, yes, that would. <laughs> that would be very bad advertisement for the Dhamma. So she said, don't worry, I won't do that. So She's still with her husband. <laughs> she, she dreaded being disgraced, you know, from uh, those she, she appreciated in her life, those she had um, a lot of respect for in her life. So in relation to one's practice, one fears the consequences in another way. I didn't really see this when um, I made this, uh, wrote this talk the first time, but as I was reading Upandita's words about this, I came across this thing that he said about our practice, otapa, or fear of the consequences of unwholesome activities. If you spend long intervals in unwholesome thoughts during your formal meditation practice, your progress will be slow. If you perform unwholesome actions at any time under the Kilesa's influence, you will suffer the consequences. Fearing that this will happen, then you will become more attentive, more alert against the Kilesas, which are always waiting to pounce. In sitting, you will become strongly committed to carrying out your continuity of mindfulness with everything that comes up. So, of course, on a grosser level, those who have otapa or fear of consequences operating in our hearts on a kind of a level of society fear what will happen if they steal or, you know, if it's worse, if they kill. So a lot of fear of those consequences keep people from doing that, of course. So... Um, This is a story about my granddaughter who says it's okay to tell you this story. It's when she was a teenager and it was okay in her group to just, you know, go take things out of a store. That was like part of her group conditioning. And so um, she, she really didn't fear her mother was saying to her, my daughter, well, you know, if you get caught you're, you're going to go to jail or something like that, you know. And it's like, oh, well, that was okay. I mean, she didn't fear those consequences so much. But when my daughter said to her, you know what your Nana's going to think if you stole something? It was like, ooh, she really woke up then. She feared the consequences of what I might think of her. So she just like, she said, no, I'm not doing that because Nana will think badly of me. So we've had some other problems with her, but <laughs> that's <laughs> but she's actually right now she's a real gem. Right now. I'm really proud of her right now. <laughs> so um 
here he is just shrinking away from doing harm because of inner respect. It's a kind of an inner um, attitude. But otapas are dreading the consequences, so it's kind of an outer relationship that we have. So here's something um, that was uh, written by Upandita that was um, he took from the text. I think it's from the Maji, um, from the Visuddhimagga. So the texts give an example of two iron balls. One is smeared with excrement and the other is red hot. A person offered these two iron balls refuses the first one because it's disgusting and rejects the second one out of fear of being burned. So not taking the ball smeared with excrement is like the quality of hiri or shame in one's mind. One finds this disgusting when one compares it with integrity. And not taking the hot ball is like otapa, the fear of committing an unwholesome act out of the fear of the karmic consequences, which mostly for those of us here are losing the respect of others and um, breaking the communal um, relationships and losing uh, our way on the path. These are really important things to look at. And, you know, when we see them, it's sort of like a cringing inside. Um, I remember Guy said that last night about that kind of cringing we have. So these two guardians are present because of clear awareness and wisdom. They're called the guardians of the world. So... We understand it'll be hurtful to us. We understand it'll be hurtful to others when this happen, happens. So when I was writing this quite some time ago, a friend told me an interaction she had that was a great example of uh, Hiri and Otapa. She said that she was having an interaction where she felt really hurt by what a person said to her and she wanted to strike out right away. But being mindful of what was going on inside herself, she held back and she thought she wanted to wait till she had um, something deeper to draw from to be able to respond to that situation. And I can relate to that. That happens to me a lot too. A lot of times I don't, I can't think of something right away and that saves me. So I need some time, you know, to think about it. So um, she waited until she could rely on more wholesome resources. So that was Hiri. That was like respecting herself, kind of tuning into herself and knowing what I'm going to say is not quite right. This will harm my own karmic field as well as harming the other person. So she was able to put, as I called it later, Dharma duct tape on her mouth (laughs) for a while. So she waited so she wouldn't reflect hurt back to that person through her unskillful speech or uh, cause harm to him in any way. So she was respecting the other person during that time, respecting the communal values that they had to have harmony in, in their relationship, in that family. So this was an example of otapa. It's more of an external relationship orientation. So there, probably like all of you, there have been certain junctures in your life when you thought, well, 
you could clean up your act a little more. And looking at those five precepts, maybe there was something that you might um, act upon or refine in order to really feel that you were deeply living in harmony with life. And so usually it's after I've said something and I've known it's caused hurt or harm in someone else or that something is, I've seen something out there or something is um, I've been hurt or harmed for about, then I, I kind of look at the, the five um, reflections, the five precepts and see how I can uh, look at them, be with them in the world in a better way. And I'm remembering that when we're taught the, those precepts, when we take them every day, actually, in the monastery, um, they are given as trainings, as you know, when you read the translation, I undertake the training. But Upandita gives them in another way. He, we'd say it in that way, I undertake the training. But one year when I was there, he said that we should say to ourselves, I take great care in undertaking this training to not harm in these ways, by killing, by stealing, by acting in ways uh, with our sexual misconduct that hurts another one, by lying, and by, um, you know, taking recreational drugs that will make us more diluted. So just to show you, I I just want to take one of these precepts and show you how refined, the kind kind of refinement he gave me in my mind during that. There was one retreat. It was the first long retreat that I took. And um, I was in Australia and I was in a group interview. And in the group interview, people were saying, um, I'm doing really good, which he never liked to hear. <laughs> he wanted to know what does really good mean, you know, and to just describe the practice. <laughs> and then he would um, he was hearing from the others and I was that oh I can sit and be with my breath for long periods of time and I thought wow that's really something I couldn't do that and there was no sleepiness or no restlessness from certain people they could sit long periods of time they weren't really being honest about their practice and so that night he gave a talk about uh, right speech and truth telling And if we're taking the precepts to be really careful that we're really acting out those precepts, especially in right speech. And there, of course, you know, in in retreat like this, it's silent. So we don't have a lot of opportunity to speak except in interviews or maybe in our yogi job. And so um, he said, you have to be precise when you speak. Because you have to be precise when you tell me exactly what's happening in your practice. And not just beat around the bush about it, but really be precise. Like if you say how many, you you sat long periods of time, how long did you sit? How long did you walk? And how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth? So he gave that Dharma talk that night. And then at the end of the talk he said, all of you who have not been completely truthful 
Tomorrow I would like you to line up out the door and tell me that you have not been truthful and to take that precept of truthfulness. And it's like, whoa, this man means business. That was my, <laughs> that was my first time to, to um, be in his presence. And so from that time, it was, it's, I mean, if you could look at our, um, you know, our reporting books, it's like everything is so precise about just what to say in, in so much precision. And I would even time myself, you know, because I really wanted to see the truth. So I would even time myself about how many, I would sit and I'd say, okay, that was... 46 minutes, or that was one hour and 21 minutes. So then I would add it up. And the walking, I would just, I'm not, nobody's requiring you to do this. But it just shows the high bar of it. And so then I would go to him and I would say, uh, this is how long I sat and this is how long I walked and would have hours and minutes, you know, and it wouldn't be just like, an hour and a half, it would be, you know, I, I sat for 10 hours and 15 minutes and I walked for so many, and he, you were only allowed four hours sleep. And you would have to say exactly how long you slept, too. And then you ha- would have to tell the truth. What did you wake up on your in-breath or your out-breath? <laughs> you know, and if you didn't know, you would just say, I don't know. So it was that kind of precision about your practice, that kind of truthfulness. So (laughs) I learned, you know, with him to really, really be careful about my speech. Um, So that's just one example of the five precepts. You know, sometimes I would say, oh, there there were a lot of people there. Then I would realize, no, there were several people there. And I would just, you know, say what was true instead of what usually just comes out of my mouth. So, I know from hard-won understanding of life and its challenges that this isn't easy to do, you know, to really look at ourselves and see where can we refine. Most of the time, you know, we're... We're looking at what we've done and it feels so heavy. And I just want to say that as much as you might think it's easy for me, it's not. Uh, You know, I'm always maybe too much so looking at my words and behavior. And I don't always feel that I'm up to the challenge sometimes. So um, what we carry in our hearts and minds can be so heavy that we can't even see a way to refine one of the precepts. Uh, but if there's any way you can take one precept and say, I'm going to do better in this area. I'm going to do my best to do better in this area. And see what you can do about that. There's a teaching from the ancient Hawaiian tradition. Um, there's some beautiful teachings in Hawaii and this one was recounted by my friend who always who teaches here also. Her name is Amita Schmidt. And she wrote the book Knee Deep in Grace about uh, Deepama. So this teaching is about the bowl of light, this Hawaiian teaching, which believes that we're all born 
with a bowl of light in our hearts. And this bowl of light is a potential to fulfill our highest aspirations. And so this is not easy. And through life's experiences, there are traumas and difficulties, and we begin putting stones in that bowl of light. And before we know it, that bowl is filled with the stones, and we don't see any light anymore. And it's something about what Guy was speaking of last night. You know, we have this, at different periods of our practice, we have this kind of life review. A lot of you were speaking about that today and looking at your own life and, you know, feeling kind of a heavy heart about um, seeing some things that have gone on in your own life and feeling like you want to make another step, take another step in another direction, or really um, take certain precepts more seriously. So eventually there's so many stones and it's so heavy that we can't see our potential anymore. And in this process of growth, spiritual growth, just connecting with people that we love, which is so hard to do sometimes, even that, the things we love, we can't connect with, we don't feel our hearts are alive sometimes, we don't know what's true anymore sometimes. And each time we encounter something that we know that's alive and true within us, like, oh, I could... I could take that particular precept. When we, we start walking and we see an ant there and our, and our foot changes <laughs> so we don't step on the ant. You know, or some of you see caterpillars going across the road and take your time to move those caterpillars to the side. And so, you know, the protection of life and um, not just not stealing, but not taking what has not been offered you know, waiting for somebody to offer something. I remember being here and all of a sudden there were shampoos and conditioners in the, in the um, bathrooms and it was a time when all of a sudden, you know, they were being offered. And so we wouldn't bring our own shampoos and have a lot of um, perfumed products around, basically. So I didn't know they weren't offered and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it. I had my own. So then I realized from someone else that they were offered, but I had to find out first. And I went to the office, are these being offered? Because there's no sign. And they said, yeah, they're being offered. So then I could take it. It's just those kind of refinements that we have in our life. They're little, but they mean a lot. And we're able to see the goodness of our own hearts, that we can really uh, refine all of that. So we come home to where we started, you know, when we were born, our birthright of having that potential as a human being to really have a clean heart, to really let that bowl of light shine to be a shining example to ourselves of clear light, of wisdom and compassion. These are simple teachings, but they mean so much. They, they, they are the foundation 
of deeper understanding in life. If we don't have this, then it's not hard, it's not easy to go on. Our, there's so much agitation in our hearts. So I'd like to end with them. Um, this was written by Bhikkhu Bodhi on his article about the two guardians of the world. This is his last paragraph. By cultivating within ourselves the qualities of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, we not only accelerate our own progress along the path to deliverance, but also contribute our share towards the protection of the world. Given the intricate interconnections that hold between all living forms, to make sense of shame and fear of wrong, the guardians of our own minds, is to make ourselves guardians of the world. As the roots of morality, these two qualities sustain the entire efficacy of the Buddha's liberating path. As the safeguards of personal decency, they are at the same time preserving the dignity of the human race. So let's sit for a moment with that. Let the words dissolve and the essence remain in our hearts. So may this contemplation benefit your well-being.